Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest for this episode is Jenny Boyd, who joined me to discuss her book, Jennifer Juniper, A Journey Beyond the Muse. Jenny is, of course, the younger sister of Patty Boyd, the woman who met and then married a certain George Harrison in 1966. Jenny shares with me her memories of having George as her brother-in-law, being a model in Swinging London, spending time with George and Patty in San Francisco, and then studying meditation with the Beatles in India at the start of 1968. Jenny Boyd, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So we're here to talk about Jennifer Juniper, uh, your book, A Journey Beyond the Muse, which, as we were just saying, uh, came out in uh, 2020. You clearly had this wonderful, incredible, fascinating life that you could have kind of detailed for some years now. What inspired you to write this book now? Well, actually, I started writing it probably about 10 years before it even got to where it where it was when I was ready to actually get it published and I think what happened is I was working for a treatment center in America and so I was really busy you know getting people into treatment or seeing them when they came back taking the aftercare group all that kind of stuff and then every now and then I would jot down memories and I didn't know at that time I was actually going to write a book I was just jotting down memories and sort of got really quite into it. And then gradually things changed, you know, like I finally met my dad and then it was not so great as I thought it was going to be. And, you know, so things kept changing and moving. And then also my sister's book came out. That meant, well, I wouldn't be able to take it out just yet, which was fine because I was still going with the changes. I also did actually at one point think, I know I won't do a memoir. I'll do a fiction, a sort of faintly disguised fiction. So I tried that and I thought, no, 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 I just wanted to do straight memoir. And that's when I went hell for leather and started on the one that you've got now. We're so glad that you did. Obviously, the the book is a lifetime of of stories, of events, of good and, and bad times. We're going to focus on, for the purposes of this podcast, your the kind of Beatle-related times that you had, of which there were many and of which they're all incredibly interesting. The first thing, I suppose to ask is the first time that you that you met George would have just been there was obviously a time when, when Patty introduced you to him and then when Patty brought him home for was it Sunday lunch I think it might have been or yeah. so what was your first kind of memory of of meeting him what was he like well for a start he was much smaller than I thought he was going to be much slimmer and um and I remember when I shook his hand feeling oh I just wanted to give him a hug you know because I'm a big hugger. I like hugging. And uh, I felt I knew him so well because everybody who didn't know the Beatles, you know, who hadn't seen photographs of them all. But he was really sweet and very normal and uh, completely put me at my ease. And um, we just chatted like your sister's new boyfriend, not necessarily a Beatle. (laughs) So when he came, when he met your, your family that time, did they respond in a similar way to you? I think so. My mum was very excited. And I remember she could see that they'd arrived outside um, in his E-type Jag. And so she immediately put on a 45 
called My Boy Lollipop, which she obviously really liked. Um, and so she had that blaring out so that when he arrived, there was this lovely music, she thought. And, um, and that was very sweet. And because he was so normal, I think everybody just carried on as if, literally as if it's our, our sister's got a new boyfriend. And then, of course, he would talk about things like, um, you know, their American tour or how frightening it was and where you remember, oh, yeah, you know, he's George, George Harrison. Um, but otherwise, um, it was very, no fireworks went off or, um, you know, and they sat very close together on the sofa. It was sweet. Obviously, their relationship blossomed through the that kind of 64, 65 period. And obviously, they they marry in, in 66. What were the kind of pros and cons for you of having a Beatle as your sister's boyfriend? What was fun? To begin with, things like um, there was a programme on television, which I mentioned in the book, called Ready, Steady, Go. And that was... Um, Kathy McGowan was the woman who actually sort of got all the musicians and she was the one that hosted it. I don't know whether this is a pro, but Patty was, she knew Patty and uh, maybe because of George. And uh, so she asked if she wanted to come along and, you know, and Patty brought me along. And so that was fun. And afterwards, Kathy had said, you can come anytime after school. Um, you know, it was kind of not too far away from my school. So that was lovely. And then, of course, you had all the fans outside who knew that you were somehow related and they'd all ask for autographs. So me, probably at the age of 15, 16, that was all quite exciting. But then um, the cons, I suppose, were at school, there were a lot of these mods, you know, these girls who had uh, you know, black leather sort of jackets and all their short hair and they'd see me coming along the pavement and they would jeer at me and say oh sister's got a new boyfriend and because they didn't like the Beatles they liked the Rolling Stones and so one I remember one day in particular and I do mention this is you know I got shoved into the road and they're all laughing and so there was um it was all right I mean I didn't really mind too much and I knew that the, I, I often would see girls sort of pointing at me, you know, at school. So you were sort of singled out a bit, but it was okay because, you know, I think I was more interested in the sixth form boys, you know, and um, going out um, to the coffee mill in Notting Hill Gate where we'd all go after school and hang out. So it, it didn't sort of um, phase me in that way. Were you ever with Patsy in this time when she received anything negative from people? Could she walk around quite freely or was she quite known quite quickly no she walks around quite freely absolutely in a way it wasn't like it is today you know it was very innocent in those days and uh, nobody would have mobbed her or done anything like that or paid any more attention to her it was much more cool in a way sounds good sounds like a long time ago as you say compared to to what it's like now uh, so alongside this this period, a few months on, you start modelling. How did you get into that side of things? When I was uh, when I was at school, the last I think it was like the last year I was there. I had a boyfriend, and he was the singer in this band called the Shanes that Mick Fleetwood was in, and he asked me out. So I started going out with him. The Shanes broke up, and then Roger got a job painting the showroom for these two fashion designers called Fole and Tuffin. 
And they said to him, oh, you know, our house model has just left and we're really, you know, strapped. And do you know anybody, any sort of um, young, young women who would be our house model? And he said, oh, um, I've got a girlfriend and I'll ask her. So he told me that I needed to come and be interviewed. And I didn't know. I mean, I, I was still at school and thinking, oh, maybe, you know, I think I'd probably just got into the sixth form. So I went along and I was very shy. And they asked me all these questions and I answered them as best I could. And then Roger was kind of sneering at me afterwards and saying, oh, you did so badly. And, and I just thought, oh, well, I don't care. I'm just going to carry on at school. But the next Monday, um, I got a call from um, one of the designers saying, we'd really like you to work for us. And uh, this is how much you'll get, which is probably like five pounds a week. Probably not bad in then. Mm. And I didn't, I don't remember telling my mom at all. I just sort of left school and I started working. And so I became a the house model, but also a lot of uh, people from sort of editors of Vogue and um, Mademoiselle and Queen, Harper, whatever it was then, they would come along and I would uh, do my, you know, just show them the clothes. And all the clothes were made for me, which was kind of nice. And then gradually they would say, well, they want to take a photograph of me or have photographs taken for their magazine. So I got into it in a much slower way. In a, in a way, it was much nicer because working for these two fashion designers, Sally and Marion, it was like being part of a family, mm. you know. So for someone who was very shy, who was still only 16, it was actually a pretty good beginning. Did you enjoy the modelling as kind of time went on? I enjoyed it mostly because there were usually the photographers of that time were young and hip and fun. So it would actually be quite fun. Every now and then you'd get somebody who's employed the photographer and they'd be rather old and stuffy and then you had to really behave. It was great, but I think what I found the most exciting was um, I, did, I had to do some catwalks when we were in New York and I didn't like that at all. It just didn't feel like me. And I hadn't trained to do catwalks with a lot of models had at that time. But so I would dance and because I loved music and it was all Motown and, you know, great dancing music. I, whenever I was asked to do anything like that, I would just dance. So whether it was railway platforms in Rome or, you know, wherever, that was fun because I just loved the music. You mentioned that the excitement and the fun, this obviously now it's kind of 65, 66 time. This is what is known to us to people that uh, maybe weren't there as swinging London in, in inverted commas did you get a kind of a sense of that did you get a sense around that time that there was all this explosion of culture happening across London the thing is when you are say at that time 17 16 17 everything is exciting and um, and it was just great fun and and I did do about two or three little short films and they would always you know you have to be near a red telephone box or you had to be in the ad lib or one of the clubs or you know so you knew that they were trying to show what this was like because I think America was very interested in what was going on in London and they were quite far behind mm. in that way in a sort of fashion sense I just thought that was life, as you do when you're that age. As things evolve and things happen, this is life. You don't think, oh, God, in however many years you're going to be looking back on this and think, God, that was an incredible time. Then at the start of 1967, you take the decision to move to another cultural hub over the Atlantic. You, you moved to San Francisco. What, what led you to relocating to live there? 
I was modeling and in, in, uh, still modeling. And I was starting to feel I had what I called something like a sort of spiritual awakening, I suppose one would call it. I didn't know about meditation then, but I just had some, something happened. And it was like waking up to a whole nother level of life that I hadn't known before. And I would spend time in amazing bookshops and that had books on about Buddhism or about Hindus or, you know, it was sort of like a seeking. And I, I sort of, the more I got into that, the less I wanted to be a model. And my friend at that time who lived in San Francisco, she was opening up a shop and she said, I'd love you to come and work at my shop. And she had been in England and she, um, when I was in Carnaby Street, and she'd got a lot of the ideas from the, from the boutiques. And so she had those copied and opened up this shop in Grant Avenue and said, come over, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you, you work in my shop. So I had to make a decision whether to keep my flat on for another three months or get a one-way ticket, probably BOAC or something like that, um, uh, to San Francisco. So... I guess we sort of had a bit of an adventurous spirit and uh, I decided that's what I'd do. Life was completely different. But what I found is that a lot of people were obviously on this same sort of spiritual path. So what I had, what I had experienced before I went, it seemed like, you know, it was sort of part of the zeitgeist. It was like the beginnings of, it's not sort of, dolly bird models anymore you know everybody was taking a step deeper and saying what is it all about and I think it was going across America and England but I think probably at that time San Francisco was ahead of the game in that way and they had all these great San Francisco musicians it was about love and peace and you know they'd had the Vietnam War so there was a lot of a backlash against that. It was fantastic. And I'm, I was there for six months. And so, you know, I really felt I lived there. And I was, uh, when my friend, when she moved, went, moved to Grant Avenue. And you just sort of, I didn't need to drive, just wherever you walked. It was all just the, um, it was the subculture, really, that uh, was everywhere. Um, around Grant Avenue and, of course, Haight-Ashbury, just little areas like that. What were you doing while you were there? Well, her shop took her shop took ages to open in the end. So I was wandering around. So she would be fussing and fretting about her shop and when was it going to open. And so I'd already met a few people through her and I'd go and sit with them and hang out with them and they'd be in some of these little head shops. Or I'd get on a Greyhound bus and I'd go over to Sausalito and wander around there or Marin County. So I just would wander and, and um, spend days, come back in the evening. And often my friend and I would go to um, the Fillmore West and see some of these great bands and like Janis Joplin sort of, uh, it was incredible. It was like everybody was part of the same group in a way. So your time over there comes to a, quite an abrupt end from what I can gather from the book. And it's tied into when George and Patty come over to, to San Francisco. When George talks about this in the anthology film, and he's got quite a, he speaks about it in quite a distasteful way. He's got not a, a very pleasant memory of it. And what you describe in the book kind of ties in with that. Tell us a little bit about what happened when George and Patty came over to yeah. San Francisco. 
Okay, um, I had been writing, because in those days, obviously, you didn't call, you just wrote letters. So I'd been writing letters to her and, and uh, to them both and saying, it's wonderful here, because we'd all sort of sense this same um, spiritual experience. And I was saying, you know, everybody's so cool, and you can walk along Haight-Ashbury, you know, nobody would mob you. And this was uh, in March, when it was like that, and there were just people and everybody would, you know, either give you a flower or give you a smile or, and so by the time they came, which was August, which by then all the sort of main hippies had gone to Marin County and Sausalito and sort of further afield. Mm. And what was left, because Timothy Leary had said to everybody, turn on, tune in and drop out. So everybody dropped out and came across to San Francisco. So the kind of people that were there when George and Patty arrived were completely different to the ones that were there in March and April, the more at the beginning of this whole movement. And I kind of thought, oh God, I don't think it's going to be how I said it was going to be. And sure enough, it was edging on a bit of a nightmare. As well as, well as the fact each of us had been given some acid so nobody was kind of in their right mind anyway. And to have all these crowds, it was very different to how I'd imagined it would have been. Why were they uncomfortable? It, was it a case of, him, of them just being mobbed by people? I think what happened, it was sort of all right as we were walking down Haight-Ashbury because we'd arrived in a limo. He wouldn't come down Haight-Ashbury. He would only sort of stay at a, a road just leading off Haight-Ashbury at the top of it. And so we walked down by ourselves and, you know, they were wearing very colourful, Patty and George, very colourful clothes, like sort of Harlequin. So they stuck out anyway, you know, and it doesn't even matter that it was George. And that was sort of OK. And George was able to go into some of the shops and, you know, people were quite respectful and keep their distance. But then obviously word got around very quickly and we were at the panhandle. And uh, he sat down and everyone was saying, play us a tune, you know, play us, play us some chords, anything. And so what, there was a guy who gave his guitar and I remember George saying, no, no, you play. So he played something and then he handed it and everyone was saying, come on, give us some chords. So George just got the guitar and said, this is C, this is G and this is A. Then he gave the guitar back, got up and we started walking back along Haight-Ashbury to the limo and I think there were a lot of people that were really disappointed, thought their hero had completely mocked them and um, hadn't sort of given, you know, what they weren't all part of the sort of love, peace and good vibes. And so as we were getting closer and closer to the limo, the crowds were deaf. You could definitely feel a bit of hostility and a bit of, you know, there, there were so many people by that time, all pushing and shoving. And there was... Um, Magic Alex and uh, Neil Aspinall, they were trying to be like mother hens, but it was starting to get sort of scary. And I could tell Patty and George were frightened. And it's not as if everybody was completely straight. So then we dived into the limo and I didn't have a chance to say goodbye to anybody because I didn't think I was going to be going home. Luckily, I had my passport. And we went straight to the Learjet where the Learjet was waiting for us. And then you came, and then you came back to London from there straight away. You didn't Pretty much, yeah. Went went uh, went over to LA where they'd been staying, and I think probably like the next day or a couple of days afterwards, we came back to London, and and I felt really let down because to me my time in San Francisco had really been 
fantastic and um, an eye-opening and an extraordinary. So you're back in London and then the next kind of part of the story that the book covers is this interest that you and your sister and the Beatles and many others obviously develop in transcendental meditation and the teachings of the, the Maharishi. How did you become interested in meditation, first of all? Was that from your time in San Francisco? No, I didn't know about meditation in San Francisco. I mean, I knew about people meditating, mm. but I didn't come across anybody who said, this is how you meditate. No, but I was still on my journey in that way. I was still on a sort of quest. And so when they um, said, oh, we're going to the Hilton, this guy from India from, called Maharishi um, is going to be giving a talk. Well, I was interested because I was staying with them anyway. And anything that, you know, was from India, I thought I, I was interested in because when I was in San Francisco, I was at the Monterey Pop Festival and Ravi Shankar was playing there. And, you know, just that anything to do with India was very much um, prevalent in the whole sort of hippie era. So I thought, well, I'd, I'd go along. And I think they thought he was wonderful. Yeah, I know Patty had probably had met him before and I think she'd done a, maybe a course or or at least had a talk by him. I can't remember. Mm. But it turned out George, you know, saying, OK, well, we're all going to Bangor now. We're getting the train, whether it was the next day or, you know, very soon afterwards. And so I became part of this is what we're doing. And so I went along with it. And so I was on the train to Bangor and, um, and then we uh, arrived and uh, Maharishi was there and that evening the Beatles were actually sitting on the stage with Maharishi and I think Maharishi realized wow you know he definitely got the golden goose here not in um, a disrespectful way but in a way it could serve him to put the message across about meditation but I still didn't get it. You know, I still didn't feel any connection because to me, my sort of spiritual awakening wasn't through someone. It was mm. something that happened that became my very own. And so I didn't feel I wanted to follow anybody with this. But we all got given our, our mantras. We all got initiated. And it was exciting because what I'd wanted to do in, Ameri in um, San Francisco what I was feeling more and more like doing was some helping in some way and spreading the message. It is about peace and love and realizing that I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do that. And so when uh, Maharishi talked about uh, going to, he wanted the Beatles to go to the ashram in India and to be initiators, then they would start something in London and that's where we would all be able to be what we would all be able to be part of. So I felt excited too, although I would have loved to have gone to India, sort of feeling. Um, but I knew that, ah, this is what I've been looking for. And then it was when we were on our way back, because of course, um, that's when we found out that Brian Epstein had died. And so it was cut short. And Patty, George and I were driving back and I wanted them to drop me off in London. They were going back to their house. And that's when um, they'd obviously decided and just as I was about to go and got out of the car, he said, would you like to come to India with us? And so, you know, it was like a dream come true, even more exciting. But what I'd been asked to do is to work at their Apple shop uh, when that opened in December 
September because we were going to be going to India in the February. Hmm. While you were in in Bangor, as you as you said, that was when they they got the news about about Brian. Do you remember much about that cut that news coming through or how they reacted to it? You, did did you kind of see any of that happen? I mean, absolute shock. It was hmm. awful. And then, you know, all the press were there gathering around and they were having to sort of say, yes, yes, you know, because Maharishi had said, yes, you have to feel happy for him, for his soul. And, you know, I don't think they really were given a chance to grieve, is my feeling. But, uh, yeah, it was it was shocking because he was going to be there. He, I think he probably would have got initiated and would probably have gone to India as well. But it wasn't to be. Did you know Brian at all? Yeah, I'd met him a few times, you know, and also his mother too. Yeah, because she was alive then and would go to his flat. His mother lived until the mid-90s. I didn't know that. Yeah, she lived because her husband, because his father had died about six weeks previous to him. So we'd spent a lot of time with Queenie, she was called. She spent, he spent a lot of time with her. And then obviously six weeks later, this you know, he, he died in, in whatever circumstances happened. She lived the, the longest out of all of them. Oh, uh, gosh. Moving on from, from them. So as you say, the invite comes for you to join the Beatles in, in Rishikesh. And it's, it's a, just a fantastic part of the book. It's such a, a fascinating time that, that all of you seem to have had out there. There's so many people that were at this ashram that have given their account of what it was like there with the Beatles. What was your kind of initial hopes and expectations for when you went out to India? Um, I don't know if I had hope and expectations. In a way, yes, I'd been meditating um, for those few months uh, before we went, and I really got a lot out of it. So I think probably I was hoping that, yes, that we'd be able to I'd have longer meditations, but also that I could be trained as an initiator. That was very exciting to me because it meant I could be doing um, something towards uh, getting more and more people to meditate. Also, it was also being just being there, just even the trip from the airport to the ashram was mind blowing. You know, it was incredible and so exciting. And I had this feeling I'd been here before. You know, it was one of those really like this is exactly where you're meant to be feeling. And then when we arrived. It was all just so huge, just that you can't almost have to pinch yourself that you finally, because I always wanted to go to India, you know, that you finally hear. So tell us a little bit about kind of a typical day while you were there. Was it uh, very structured or would you be able to kind of go where you wanted or what was it like initially out there? No, it wasn't um, terribly structured. Often they would have the a meeting in in the hall and Maharishi usually he would just check and to see how everybody was and whether their plumbing was working okay or you know things different little things that would go on or go wrong I don't think that was that evening meeting was all the time but it was sort of a lot of the time and we would congregate outside uh, there was this little hut that was the kitchen area and we would all be sitting outside just by the Ganges and you know, all the monkeys would be flying all over the place. And that's where we'd congregate with other, other people. So when Mia Farrow was there, you know, we'd be chatting with her or, or just we got to know lots of people, mostly the younger people. You know, I think there was a feeling of, 
I didn't get it right at the beginning, but sort of, you know, as, as time went on, there was the oldest diehards and then there was the younger ones. And obviously we were young, so we were sort of hanging with them a bit. But because our bungalow, you know, the bungalows were all separated, each bungalow had about seven or eight people, you know, each room individual um, for going down the path. And so a normal day would often be, especially at the beginning, is that our little lot at our bungalow would all go up on the roof. We'd have breakfast and we'd go up on the roof and Paul and George and John would take their guitars and um, Patty and I'd be up there. And um, I'm not sure, I don't remember seeing much of Jane Asher up there at that time. So, um, but maybe that's because Paul wasn't there very long. But I remember Patty, um, Cynthia and me up there and often, you know, we'd have like our hands painted with henna by one of the Indian women. But basically we'd listen to their music. And um, what struck me, which was so amazing, was all the songs were about their experience at the ashram. It wasn't about anything else. And, you know, like Bungalow Bill, or whether it was Prudence or, you know, it was all um, stuff that was going on right there. Um, okay, so that would be sort of mornings and then, of course, lunch and you'd have dal. There's always dal or rice and dal. And then and then you do your meditation. So sometimes bits in the morning and uh, maybe you get a couple of hours in the afternoon. There was um, a man there he with his sewing machine in one of the tents. So for hardly anything, you could get like um, baggy clothes, baggy sort of like silk pajama type things made up. Uh, Patty and I would go down to the Ganges sometimes and uh, there was one time I remember we got a boat and went over to Rishikesh and uh, you know sort of uh, wandered around there and there also there were quite sometimes a little bunch of us would go down and just sit there in the sun chatting Maharishi wasn't that pleased about that he, when he found out because he thought we should all be in our rooms meditating it was it was fantastic it was really I could have stayed there forever. What did you make of Maharishi? Did you spend much time with him kind of one-on-one? Only when I got um, what, you know, he talked about um, when you meditate, you have an iceberg, which often, you know, you get, don't feel well or, you know, and it means there's a lot of stuff that hasn't come up that's unresolved through your meditation. I had what I thought was an iceberg. And I went in the middle of the night to go and find him, thinking, oh, God, I'm sure he's going to know that I don't really trust him or believe in him. You know, when we, we would have our own talks with Maharishi, just us, our little group, I never, I just never kind of believed in him. I just didn't. But the meditation I really loved. So anyway, that night I went off to find him to say I had a burning headache and sweating and feeling terrible and then shivering. And so he just said, oh, go back to your room. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just an iceberg. Well, when Patty saw me the next morning and just took one look at me, they called for the doctor. And it was dysentery, of course. <laughs> so um, I only, that's the only time I saw Maharishi just by himself. But that was the time, and, and I write it in my book, when after a while I'd get visitors and John and Cynthia came in one day. And I was still in bed, sort of propped up. And John had done a drawing for me. It was of a man, an Indian man with a turban on his head and he's sitting cross-legged and he's got his flute and at his, um, at his feet are uh, 
a basket and snakes coming up. And underneath it says, because uh, to begin with, the first doctor said it was tonsillitis. It was only because another doctor happened to come by. They said it was dysentery. But John had done this drawing for me. It said, by the power that's in and the power that's out, I cast your tonsil lighthouse out. Love, <laughs> John and Sin. Whatever they did, it was creative. Whether it was singing, playing their guitar or making, making a drawing or... Yeah, so my, my feeling, but then I didn't think much about Maharishi, you know, because I didn't see much of him mm. in the meditation. I was doing longer and longer time hours, and uh, I just felt wonderful. So I didn't think, oh, I hope I don't meet Maharishi. You know, it wasn't like that at all. Okay. It just didn't get me because I knew this was great. You know, this was really what I'd been looking for. What happened to John's drawing? Have you still got it? No. I gave it to my mother to look after, and and it's a shame, really. And she she somehow lost it. And then also, I know George had given her right at the beginning albums, you know, the Beatle albums, and they'd all signed to Mum, love from you know, and you know, she'd sort of let whoever came into the house, oh, I'll borrow this or take this, or it didn't mean stuff to her. Just 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 quickly, a few more questions uh, around India. Uh, if we could talk a little bit about the the Beatles themselves while they were there. Ringo, I think, only stayed for a couple of weeks and ran out of his baked beans and had to go back to back yeah. to the back to the UK. Well, so John and, and Paul then, what do you remember about them while they were in India? Did you feel like they really committed to to the, the teachings and to meditation? Yeah, I think um, especially George and John. And I'm sure Paul did, you know, in his, in his way too. But I got a feeling with John, I think he was looking for something of depth as well as George. And I think that's why it was so shocking at the end, because I think they, they both felt betrayed. I personally think that when uh, Brian Epstein died, I don't know if they actually had a chance to really grieve it, because then suddenly Maharishi was there manager you know call it what you like but but the thing is Brian had always been there for for everything for them you know and really seen them through a lot and with Maharishi I think they felt betrayed because I think they'd probably pinned a lot of hope on him. Another character that's that's in India with you is this figure of Magic Alex uh, which obviously mm. uh, he, he comes up in the book quite a lot what did mm. you make of him? Well, it was rather strange because he became one of the sort of hangers-on in a way because uh, John had been taking some acid before we went to India and Magic Alex, supposedly, had made this little nothing box that flicked on lights on and off. And John thought it was just absolute genius. Magic Alex then, everyone thought he was a sort of engineer and able to do these extraordinary magical things. But I don't think he was able to at all. I do believe that because John and Cynthia came, I, I rented a room from uh, Alex and mm. John and Cynthia came the night before we were all going to India. And I knew that Alex was trying to persuade John not to go, to come to his guru instead. And there was, I think he was very competitive and he felt John was his friend. Um, so I do believe that when he went to India, it was sort of to make mischief, I think. 
Um, and I, I think the way he did it was he could hear already that there were rumors flying around. And he befriended one of the uh, American women that who'd heard other people who said Maharishi had been in, inappropriate. Mm. And I think he sort of ran with it. We were so innocent. We were so naive. I think probably maybe the Beatles were ready to leave. It, I mean, it was so extreme from the life they'd been leading. I don't know, maybe unconsciously ready to leave too. So it was probably like the perfect storm in a way. And did you leave with Patty and George or did you stay longer? Or I left with Patty and George. George, I remember George waking me up saying, come on, get pack. We're on our way. We're leaving. And that was, that was all I knew. And um, to Patty, George and I were... George wanted to see uh, Ravi, Ravi Shankar. Mm. So the three of us all went straight to Madras and we stayed uh, with Ravi and sort of toured with him a little bit with his troupe, which was lovely, you know, which was really, really special. And then we went back to England. One of the things that, that really comes across in the book, actually, about your kind of time in India um, is that you you, mm. you you do look back on it with a, a huge amount of, fondness still did it have a kind of a long-term impact on you I still meditate in that way yes I think also because I'd been working for such a long time on the book as well as doing other stuff it sort of heightens it more because the more you start thinking about something you remember other things and so in a way it's all kind of still in technicolor for me and I think part of that is writing the book too Uh, it was an incredible time Obviously, the book then goes on to talk about your your life with with Mick Fleetwood and many many other things, and and the Beatles kind of recede a little bit into the the background, especially obviously as Patty and George go their their separate ways. There is some some nice pictures in one of your other books of you and Patty with George on what looks like kind of a snowy Christmassy time in in the nineties, maybe at Friar Park. Yeah, I, Patty took a photo of me and George at um, at his home, and I took a George. I took a photograph of her and George. Yeah, in musicians in tune. Yeah. So did you yeah, stay in touch lovely. with George? Absolutely. Yeah, all good friends. It was nice. Well, the book is Jennifer Juniper. Uh, it's uh, as I said, there's there's lots more to it than than just kind of Beatles stuff. We should make that clear. But the stuff that's in there is is fascinating. So all that's left, really, Jenny, is to just thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. It's been really nice to talk to you and thank you.